Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with Ray Blanchard, a psychologist, sexologist, who coined the term autogynephilia to describe those men that identify as women, often transitioning to live as women, who get a sexual excitement from imagining themselves as women. And of course, this has got him into trouble from trans extremists. And when he praised a book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, by Michael Bailey, he got into even more trouble. Now, Ray is fascinating because he also has a lot to say about whether or not being same-sex attracted is immutable, kind of the gay gene theory, and also about various paraphilias, or kinks as you might refer to them. Anyway, I went to see Ray Blanchard at his home in Toronto, not that far away from Kenneth Zucker's home, who I had interviewed the week before. My name is Ray Blanchard, and I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. I'm probably best known for my work on gender identity disorders, although from my own perspective, my work on gender identity disorders is maybe at most one-third of the research that I did in the area of human sexuality, uh, not the totality of my interests by any means. I got interested in gender identity disorders because uh, I became interested in human sexuality while working at a prison. And really my first interest was sex offenders, not transsexuals by any means. But then a job came open at a gender identity clinic uh, in what was then the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, now part of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. I knew that research uh, or jobs in human sexuality that had a research component to them did not grow on trees. So even though I was not primarily interested in transsexualism, I was very keen to get that position. And I did get that position. Although I wasn't mainly interested in gender identity disorders before I went to the gender clinic, I did develop, I did find it interesting once I got there. And I was in particular interested in the uh, biologically male patients who uh, said that they wanted to become women. Uh, They were very different from most people's stereotyped idea of what a transsexual was or very different from people's idea of what a transsexual was back in 1980, which was when I started at the gender clinic. Um, uh, Back in 1980, you didn't have a lot of people saying, I'm a lesbian trapped in a man's body. That came later. Uh, So I, I was more interested in the heterosexual male patients than I was in the homosexual males or in the homosexual females, there have always been extremely feminine gay men. There have always been extremely masculine lesbian women. So the transsexual versions, you know, looked to me like they had just gone one additional step. You know, there was nothing illogical about it. Whereas the heterosexual men uh, looked to me like something very, very different And that was where I focused my research on gender identity disorders and why I picked 
that particular group. And you coined the term autogynophilia, didn't you? Yes, I did. I coined that. When did I publish that? I think it was 89. Yeah, that was because at that time, the closest word to describe these patients was transvestism, which within psychiatry and mental health uh, didn't mean any kind of cross-dressing as it sometimes does to the lay public. It specifically meant cross-dressing with sexual excitement in heterosexual men. So these guys used to be called transvestitic transsexuals. That was what they were called at that time. And clinicians who were aware of them and were willing to talk about them saw them as transvestites who had developed gender dysphoria as a kind of secondary complication Mm -hmm. in the way that a cold can turn into pneumonia. Yes. Okay. That was how they were viewed. Um, And... I mean, it kind of captured the group well enough, but the more I saw them, the more I realized the first, there were two problems with the word transvestism. One is that it's used by the lay public to mean completely different syndromes. For example, some people still call uh, drag queens transvestites. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that was one problem with it, was the word had, had come to be used in a confusing way because it applied to quite different syndromes. And the other problem with it was I realized that it was an overemphasis on women's clothing, that what excited these men sexually was not only women's clothing, and sometimes it wasn't women's clothing at all. It could be something else that to them symbolized their own femininity, you know, like shaving their legs or... One patient, I remember one day... I was interviewing this biological male patient, and he he made some reference to the fact that he had come to the clinic dressed as a woman, and he was dressed completely as a man, and I said, what what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm wearing women's underarm deodorant. Really? (laughs) So that was his paraphilia, or that was his... Well, I don't know if it was his favorite thing of all, but Mm. that was... I picked that as an absurd example of, you know, not... Not all these quote-unquote transvestites were actually cross-dressing. Right. So it could be, for example, a man imagining himself with breasts or a vagina or any of those. Yeah. Imagining yourself with breasts is probably the number one most common uh, cross-gender fantasy. Breasts would be number one. That's what most people would... Most most people... That's what most autogonophiles would like to have. Well, I first wrote about this issue in 2003 because I was coming out of Euston Station in London and noticed for the first time ever this huge store called Transformations, which was a chain as it turned out, um, selling clothing, shoes and other paraphernalia for cross-dressing men. And, for example, you could also get pills that were supposedly effective in bringing on um, symptoms of um, premenstrual tension. You could buy rubber stick-on vaginas so you could sit down to pee. There were all kinds of other um, lotions and potions that were catered to the autogynophiliac. And men would go in, six foot four men with full beards or five o'clock shadow, and they'd be dressed up by female staff into very fetishised 
sex stereotype female clothing and they'd stay in those clothes all afternoon and then they'd buy some items and they'd go home. And I realised that not only had the diagnoses of transsexuality started to creep away and be replaced by an umbrella which was trans, transgender, but there was also a lack of recognition that these men were, in fact, sexually excited um, by this kind of um, scenario. But tell me how it is that this caused such controversy when you explained what is common sense now, all these years later, that this is to do with a sexual thrill or a paraphilia or whatever we want to call it. Why was it seen as offensive? Well, I am going to answer that, but I want to, there's something that I really want to say, and I'm, I want to say it somewhere, so I'm going to insert it here, which is, I did not invent the word autogonophilia as a term of reproach. And it's a sadness to me that it has come to be used in that way. Mm -hmm. That was not my intention. I was not motivated by loathing or much of anything, really. I was very remote from, I mean, I was, this was my paid employment, right? Okay. Gender was not a hobby to me. It was it was what I was getting paid to do. Yeah, it wasn't a campaigning tool. No, no, it, it, it was, was your study. Yeah, and and so it it, it uh, and I invented the word because it was the only way that I I was increasingly finding other ways of talking about this phenomenon inadequate. And finally, after much resistance to the idea of it, I invented the word. But I did not invent it so that people could say, yeah, 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 autogonophile. And and, as I say, I'm disappointed that it has turned out that way. But when I asked you about the way that you and the term were attacked, it was on the understanding that you were simply describing uh, a phenomenon that we really needed in order to understand what was happening and how we could treat people. But immediately the accusations of anti-trans or transphobia or bigotry started being thrown out. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, uh, so there's... Why Why would people have such a... Why would people, and people here spelled autogonophiles, or, and specifically gender dysphoric autogonophiles, why did they have such a strong reaction against the introduction of this term. I think there are at least two separate reasons. One reason is for some of these, so for some autogonophiles who become gender dysphoric, maintaining their mental economy requires maintenance of certain beliefs, okay? A guy who has trashed his marriage alienated his children, maybe been forced to retire from his job, and has, you know, uh, lost a lot uh, in the process of moving into a female role. They've, they've invested a lot in this notion that they had to do this because they were really a woman and could no longer endure the charade of pretending to be a biological, pretending to be a man. So it was threatening to a lot of people because it threatened 
their self-concept and a self-concept which had, among other things, been the reason for a lot of damage that they did in their own lives and damage to people around them. Right. So there was a lot riding on maintaining a certain self-concept as really being a woman, a woman who who had to be expressed or else, you know, the man who was encasing her was right. going to come so, so there were purely psychological reasons. And the, but there's a separate reason, which is we might call logical or practical as opposed to emotional, which is I think that autogynophilic transsexuals calculate quite correctly that this is a tough sell to the general public. The, the media were all over the Cinderella story of the man trapped in a woman's body, and the media have been all over the Cinderella story since the 1950s when um, Christine Jorgensen pioneered it. You love. So it's like there might be some people who weren't buying it, but this was a perfect media story. Uh, if not Cinderella, the ugly duckling. These fairy tales of someone who's a misfit, who's unhappy because their true nature was not in evidence, but when it becomes in evidence, then you have a happy ending. The public bought this. And the early spokespeople for transsexualism, like Christine Jorgensen. Uh, I mean, I, did I ever meet her in person? No, I never met her in person. She died only recently, didn't she? I don't know. Wasn't if that long ago. But, um, but yes. Yeah. And, a, a total pioneer of exactly that fairy tale. And she was behind the scenes collaborating with Hearst Publishing. You know, behind the scenes, they... You know, there would be absurd news stories. Like, there was one picture of her getting off the plane, coming back from, I forget where it was, Sweden or whatever, Denmark, when she supposedly had just had a sex reassignment. Actually, I think it was just removal of the penis and testes at that point. But the, the caption was how surprised she was by all the reporters being at the airport to greet her. What nonsense. Really? Yeah. I didn't know this. Oh, yeah. And, um... With all, it was orchestrated. It was coordinated with Hearst Publishing, who, who you know, sold a lot of newspapers, uh, and, and and helped her out financially. I've been told by people who would know more about it than than uh, than I would. Anyhow, so that was sellable to some extent to the public. The autogynophilic narrative, no matter how carefully portrayed was never going to be palatable to the general public. There's no way, you could, how could you explain to somebody, well, I have this thing. It started out as sexual excitement. It started out as me going into the laundry basket and getting me mom's panties and putting them on and masturbating. But later, I began feeling like a woman outside of times of sexual excitement until gradually I felt like a woman all the time. And now the thought preoccupies me 24-7. It's no longer closely correlated with periods of sexual excitement because nobody has an erection 24-7. Um, and so it, it did begin as something sexual, but now it's something 
more than sexual. Now it's become how I see myself and my place in the world. All that people are going to hear is, it started out with me masturbating in my mother's panties. Right. So, I mean, they have a realistic problem in that if they described the sequence of the, the developmental sequence of events, people would not get it and um, would be uh, hor- horrified. Many people would be horrified because they would hear the sexual aspect of it. And particularly when there are instances, who knows how many, but enough for women to be freaked out by the idea of men breaking into their homes and masturbating into their panty drawer or stealing their underwear off washing lines. I mean, these crimes are occasionally reported in the press and they're creepy. I mean, this is how they're reported. And so there's also a fear that some women have um, that these men are in fact sexual predators and dangerous to them. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that and I think it's it's become... Um a feature of a certain type of gender-critical person. Uh, In reality, I I mean, I I worked, okay, I worked 15 years in a gender identity clinic and the next 15 years in a specialty clinic for assessment of sex offenders. So I know both sides of this. Right. All right. The notion that, you know, you have lots and lots of transsexuals uh, breaking into homes and masturbating. I mean... Does, it, does something like this happen occasionally? Of course. In the world of sec, clinical sexology, everything happens occasionally. All right. But, but, but uh, I think I understand what many of the objections of gender-critical people are. Uh, but I think that they, personally, I would prefer if they stick with what's an objection that's defensible and not try and say, let's throw spaghetti against the wall until something sticks and let's make them sex offenders, let's make them pedophiles, let's make them something else. I think that there are... Women do have legitimate objections to, uh, to certain things. We can go in more detail, but I don't think you need to to tart this up with... Lots of extreme things that are not not common at all. Uh, I I completely agree, and I really object to and find offensive the notion that trans activists are all groomers, child groomers. That drag queen story time is about being sexual predators and targeting children. It's deeply offensive. My objection to extreme trans ideology is that it has pushed governments into adopting self-identification so that men um, of whichever stripe can and will be placed in women's prisons, hospitals and can have access to sports facilities and the like. Now, when people say, yes, but you can't say that trans women are sexual offenders and that that's their motivation well we don't say that men are and that that's their motivation but we say enough are to keep men out of particular areas single sex spaces such as prison wings hospital wards changing rooms and men don't say to me well do you think we're all rapists because of course I don't I know that this is ridiculous enough are 
to be concerned about it. So it's not about keeping trans women out of single-sex spaces. It's about keeping men out. But trans activists say that this translates into me and other feminists saying, you're all perverts, which is absolute nonsense. Yeah, I, you know, I've... I've since I went on Twitter, which I don't know how many years it has been now, you know, I've I've come to see a see thing see a perspective that I didn't see when I was working as a clinician. Also, when I was working as a clinician, you know, I, I left the gender clinic in '95, so it's been a long time since I worked in the area. But that's my window on how people react to gender now. Basically, is Twitter, which I'm sure is a completely anomalous way to view the world. Right. <laughs> but um, one of the things I came to feel is like. I don't think I don't think women have to object to men in women's spaces on the grounds of danger. I think that it's quite sufficient to say I'm not comfortable with this. You know? Um it's again it, the the danger the danger uh angle to me again is is kind of like gilding the lily. If now this is uh, it may, might be an insuperable problem, which we can talk about later, but I think it's sufficient for, for a woman to say, I just am not comfortable with a man being in a woman's washroom. It's, and I don't think they have to go an additional step and say, it's because it's dangerous. I think they're afraid if they just say, I'm not comfortable with it, they'll look mean. Or prudish. And the kind of fainting Victorian lady who needs smelling salts if she sees a penis. Right, right. So, but and that's my own view. You don't have to argue mm. danger. You could just argue, I'm not comfortable with this. And, it, you know, I kind of learned a bit. I did learn a little bit from Twitter. And, you know, because I'm a man, my associations with a washroom is... Urination and defecation. That's it. You're in, you're out, you're done. But, you know, some, some women that I interacted with from Twitter pointed out that it, that's not all that women go to a washroom for, that there's a whole suite of other behaviors that have to do with menstruation, have to do with changing menstrual products, sometimes have to do with cleaning up after an accident, uh, especially, you know, which can be very embarrassing, especially for a young girl who's not experienced. And... and and that's like an additional thing there that they just don't want men in the vicinity when they're coping with that right third collection of physiological right. uh, functions. Or pregnancy and babies, that kind of thing as well. Yeah. So th- that's how I feel ab- about that. Um, that it's not necessary to argue danger and it's not necessary to argue, um, you know, predation. It's just, it's sufficient to say, I'm not comfortable with this. And I, I think that the idea of biological males using women's rooms needs to be thought about. <laughs> yes, and I mean, obviously, as you say, you left the, your direct work in the gender clinic in 1995, where things must have been very different. And presumably you weren't seeing young women say that they were trapped in the wrong body 
and wished to become male. Was that very rare? No, 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 no. Oh, no. No, no. You know, at the, at the time I worked at the gym, let me think. I did once do a, I did about in 70, what year did I do this? 87 or something, 84, 87. I analyzed the numbers of patients of different classes. And it was the only reason, the only reason that there was an excess of males in the gender clinic at all is that you have this third feeder population of autogonophiles who were all males. If you just looked at the, those coming out of the homosexual groups, the number of males and the number of females was equal. Really? Yeah. That surprises me. Yeah. That's interesting. And did these women say that they were, had been same-sex attracted prior to them wishing to change? Did they always feel like they were trapped in the wrong body? Did they use that discourse? Yeah, yeah. Because even in, you know, 1980 sounds like a long time ago, but actually the whole gender thing was on its way. Right. Uh, so, yeah, of course they all had access to the same to the same lingo. And, yeah, they would come in and, and say that they had always felt uncomfortable as women, uh, that they preferred to be perceived as men. And uh, they were by no means rare. I mean, and, in fact, a higher proportion of them, I believe went the whole distance to get reassignment surgical procedures. Which included phalloplasty? Rarely. Rarely. Phalloplasty is, even today, is, is uh, a very problematic procedure. So the great majority of the females would have hysterectomy, oophorectomy, uh, and uh, reconstruction, re- removal of the female breasts and... Uh, and construction of a male chest contour, mm-hmm. which can be done different ways depending on how how big busted a woman is to start with. And did you have an understanding of what had led those women to feel so distraught with their birth sex? Or, of course, because your method, as is the method that good practitioners push forward now, is to try to look at any underlying problems and perhaps assist people to live happily or more comfortably within their own body? Okay, I have to give two answers to this because you, you've triggered two different Sorry, it's um, <laughs> my fault. One is that I had known that there were lesbians who would make a point when making love with their girlfriends, I'll touch you, but hands off me. So they call those stone butches. Exactly. That's the lingo. I knew that there were stone butches, and I, and I and other clinicians at all had seen, like, wait a minute, these stone butches start to look a little transsexual around the edges. Kathleen Stock and I were just talking about the notion of the stone butch on our podcast the other day. And many of those women did present as male, and of course did quote-unquote, cross-dress. And some of us recognise that as coming out of the days when women could be arrested for being, for holding hands with their female partner in the street. But what's the difference between that very butch lesbian who does that for aesthetic reasons and maybe erotic reasons and an actual transsexual woman? Is it gradation? I think it's a matter of degree. That's my personal... I mean, I haven't known that many stone butchers. I remember I knew one when I was in university. She was a friend of a friend. He had known her from 
they've been in high school together. And so I got kind of these salacious details about her life. And, and, I, and she had a girlfriend uh, whom I had known from a different context. That the girlfriend basically was heterosexual. And I think after ending this relationship was with men until now, you know, for the rest of her life. But I, you know, I was told, you know, when they had sex that the, the Butch would make a point that she was making love to the other woman and she did she would keep a t-shirt on or whatever yeah. and and stuff like this so to me this i mean this is what female to this is be characteristic of female to male transsexuals right they keep a t-shirt on they don't want their breasts touched they don't want their vulva touched they they do their partner their partner doesn't do anything to them so i could see look this is just a gradation you know they've just gone this additional step and I don't, now I'm not a lesbian, obviously, I haven't made a systematic study of cross-gender behavior in lesbians, but I don't think that even in the old days, you know, like, you know, Paris in the 1900s, I don't think these lesbians were dressing as men because that was the only way they could hold hands in public. You know, when it comes to sex, people basically, if they're doing something weird, it's because they want to do it. You know, that was, <laughs> that was why I was more successful as a sex researcher than a lot of other people, because I just would just look at the obvious. There's no other reason, you know what, there's no other reason why you would have charges against molesting three different eight-year-olds unless that was hot for you, you know? I, I mean, I remember going to the police vice conference, which used to run every year in the UK, and some civilians would be invited along if we were doing research in the area of sexual exploitation, online pornography, the like. And there was lots of stuff um, about men with um, fetishes, um, about, for example, the um, soles of little boys' feet. So they would photograph the underneath of their bare feet when they were sitting on walls at the seaside and... I mean, stuff that most people would not even think about as a paraphilia or some sort of kink, as the, the more uh, colloquial language would have it. But I remember talking to a senior police officer who'd just done a raid on a house of a man who was bothering teenage girls. He would sit behind them on a bus and he would touch their hair. And he would ask them to come back to his home with him. Can I wash your hair? Can I wash your hair? And they went round to arrest him for harassment. And what they found in his bath that they thought was a severed head, which was in fact a hair salon mannequin of a head and shoulders, where he had been rubbing canned tomato soup and canned custard into this mannequin. And they thought, this is a very sick puppy. What is this fetish? And what do we arrest him for? And this was pre-internet. And they found in his living room a magazine called Splat, which was a stapled together, quite kind of cheaply made magazine for fetishists who like rubbing tomato soup and custard into the hair of girls. And there were a 100 members of this group. I mean, how did they find each other? That's a very good question. Oh, this was before the internet. There used to be, back in the old days, when um, 
let's say by old days, I mean, let's say beginning of the 20th century, the early 1900s, when it was still common for a lot of young girls to wear their hair in braids, there was a, a kind of recognized uh, fetish slash sexual offender who would sit behind girls on like the subway or whatever and cut their braids off. And there's actually a name for this. They were called hair despoilers. Really? Yeah. Hair despoilers. And this was a paraphilia? Oh, sure. Who knew? Well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of people have known, but I mean, this is like... Uh, it's interesting. The the twentieth century, the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, sex researchers <clears throat> had extensive and detailed descriptions of all kinds of paraphilic behavior. And nowadays, you know, you just don't see this literature research. People don't know about it. It's as if it doesn't exist. But I mean, there are there there are volumes and volumes describing the most exotic paraphilic behaviors and the, the clinicians describing it knew it was a paraphilia they might not have known those words but they knew what they were looking at um, it's one of maybe several ways in which I feel people have gotten stupider well you know I would agree because one of the objections and you may not agree with this so I'm not putting words in your mouth but one of the objections that I and many within the lesbian and gay uh, world have to the ever-increasing unbreakable Wi-Fi code that is now LGBTQQIA plus two-spirit, is that what they've done is put a huge number of heterosexual men with a kink who likes strangulation, who likes defecating on his partner, who um, is into all kinds of what we would call kink, and some of it deeply unpleasant for women. And they've put him into the what used to be an acronym standing for the movement to liberate lesbians and gays from discrimination or oppression. So now the queer encompasses basically the paraphilic male, for one, um, which is politicised. It's politicised some quite disturbing behaviour that might be that might have um, a very negative effect on the lives of their sexual partners. Mm -hmm. But these are now in with this liberation flag and they're protected because they are now part of an oppressed group, which is the LGBTQQI lot. Well, none of that was an accident. I mean, they, they, they knew that they needed to affiliate themselves with a larger group and a group that was on its way to achieving... Uh, pretty much. I mean, I think you would have to say that the L the LG movement. Once they had gotten uh, legal marriage equality, they pretty much had achieved what their original goals were. You know, I mean, it's not often that you look at a group that's been discriminated against and say, "Well, you got what you wanted." In this case, they did. But now, and everybody, people have commented on this, this is not an original thought. You now have these NGOs whose purpose was to advocate for lesbian and gay rights, but now they no longer really had a purpose. That's right. So they got repurposed for, for gender issues. Well, and also completely off-the-wall, made-up identities such as asexuals and aromantics. 
So they are now apparently part of the rainbow flag and an oppressed minority that needs special rights. For example, Stonewall, um, that obviously now mainly advocates on behalf of transgender people yeah, yeah. and no longer lesbians and gay men. Right. They have just released a report written by uh, a woman who says that she is asexual and therefore an oppressed minority about the needs of asexual and aromantic people in the UK. Now, they cited their oppression because obviously I don't know of any so-called asexual person that has been kicked out of their apartment, lost their job, been disowned by their parents, been beaten up in the street, all of the things that have happened most of those have happened to me in the past. I've been an out lesbian since the 70s. But what they say is that they, 50% of them can't come out at work. They feel too scared to come out at work. Who goes into the office and talks about not getting laid? <laughs> you know? And in what way is that an oppression? And 47% of them say that they're misunderstood because some people think that asexuals never have sex. I mean, it's batshit crazy stuff and they're inventing oppressions all over the show yeah yeah what, because what it's, is become it? this, it's become such a desirable status to be a member of an oppressed group uh that 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 the asexuals join and i have the same reaction as you like discrimination against asexuals how would i even know why would you, you know? want to know well yeah you buy the water cooler and somebody says, I don't have sex and I don't have sexual feelings. Go away. I don't want this conversation with you. Right? <laughs> so, so there's that. And there's also the fact that you were criticised, heavily criticised, for suggesting that there is something to be said for being concerned with the mental health and well-being of those that present with extreme gender dysphoria or body dysphoria. And, of course, it was moving then towards it being a lifestyle choice and a self-identifying factor, as opposed to uh, an illness, for want of a better word. And didn't you say at one stage, you were asked if classifying transgender people um, as having a disorder contributes to stigma? And you said, no. I mean, how many people make a joke about trannies? Um, consult the DSM first, how many of them would read up on the mental health specifications of that particular group of people? I mean, this is madness, isn't it? Well, I, I think it is, but I mean, I, I think what happened, well, obviously, these a lot of this is coming out of autogynophilic transsexuals uh, rather than the homosexual. Well, although there are some of that female to male variety, you have like Stephen Whittle in the UK and people like that. They they really rankle at the idea that they have that this is a mental disorder, okay, uh, and so for them, you know, they, it was a kind of a no brainer, I guess, to see if we can relabel, reframe transsexualism as a political problem and not as a clinical problem, that would be a step forward. And that's what they did. They At some point, maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know when it started, the activists of the day decided to reconceptualize gender identity, cross-gender identity, not a clinical problem, it's a political problem. Right. And do you think that the Yogyakarta Treaty, that that 
that conference, that meeting that Stephen was um, at and was a big mover and shaker there, do you think that that solidified the notion that gender was a political category as opposed to maybe those of us that consider it to be more of a social construction or, of course, very separate from biological sex? I wasn't really paying attention to gender during New Year's when that Yogyakarta meeting occurred. As I told you, or I said in my... Um, introduction that gender is only a fraction of the research that I did and I wasn't concentrating on it in those days. Uh, I, I don't... It, 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 they've, they've gone pretty far with that. They've, while they've managed to have their cake and eat it too, on the one... And it, he, to some extent, a lot of these changes in how autogonophilic transsexuals see themselves are driven by upper middle class males with lots of money. And it matters because of this. If you want to get your surgery paid for by a third party payer, whether it's an insurance company or a government run insurance plan as we have in Canada, as you have in England, you have to have a disorder. Nobody pays money to a woman who says, you know what, I'd like bigger breasts. Or a guy who says, I hate my big nose and I want it smaller. If you want surgery paid for, or even other procedures, maybe not surgery, but other procedures that cost money, you have to have a diagnosis. This, of course, would not have been a concern for the Jennifer Priskers of the world or these other multi-billionaire transsexuals because what's it to them? Um, but because there still are uh, uh, a lot of people who do want that third, want or need third-party payment, that has probably to some extent slowed up completely, them completely escaping from medicine. Uh, and, and, you know, but... Uh, for that class of, of transsexual, it, it, it's, there, was no, there was no downside to completely reframing the condition as a political oppression and not a mental disorder. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that side of it. Of course, we talk about Big Pharma and the benefits of Big Pharma, but not being a conspiracy theorist means I didn't think that Big Pharma were part of this early on. As some people would argue, I just think that they will inevitably benefit from the increasing um, use of, of drugs on young people in Canada, in the UK and elsewhere. Some of the people who are gender criticals who are in my Twitter feed essentially like blame me, me personally. You know, they, they have this kind of conceptualization of how these clinical practices developed, which somehow vaguely involve a smoke-filled back room of cigar-chomping patriarchs who were figuring out new ways to attack, attract women. I mean, so it's so it's and and many times, you know, you are responsible, and meaning me personally, I am responsible. First place, I didn't join the party until 1980. The whole, the, yeah, the basic the basic procedures of how how patients were evaluated and what treatments were offered were well established by 1980 when I joined the gender clinic. So Harry Benjamin, for example, and the... Long before me. Right. Um, but I do get a lot of that. Your risk because of you that we have to feel afraid to go into washrooms. And I do, I, I've had to block a number of people who really became abusive. But 
that was tangential to the point I really wanted to make, which was that my experience in this area was between 80 and 95. In those days, transsexuals still had to pee. They were using women's washrooms. Nothing about that situation has changed in principle from those days, but the much vaster number of patients who are now getting either getting sex reassignment or living as the opposite sex has made something that you could just muddle through yes. into an issue. Yes. So the fact of the matter is on certain topics like what should be done about biologically male transsexuals who need to urinate in the middle of the day, I honestly don't have an opinion on it. Mm. I don't have the answer. Mm. And I don't feel guilty about not having the answer because, A, I was a clinician, not a political scientist or or an ethics expert. Or a legislator. Exactly. And in the days when I was working in this field, these these things just weren't a problem because there, there were so few people involved. You could just wing it. Yes. So... I don't have an answer to some of the most um, pressing issues that are occurring now. I think it's a no-brainer that biological males do not participate in women's sports. I think it's bonkers that anybody could make the contrary argument. I think it's a no-brainer that biological males who still have intact male genitalia do not go into women's changing rooms. I mean, I think that a number of these things... You could just say, let's get real. Of course, you're not going to, you know, compete with, with biological right. females. Let's get real. You're not going to go into a wind's locker room and, and, and flash a penis, uh, you know. But, so you can kind of dispose of all of those. But then you kind of get back to what happens if it's the middle of the day and you really have to pee. And that's where I have to say, I don't know. I don't know anymore. I just don't know. The argument that I suppose is counter to the just let it happen when we know there are vast numbers now that we can't just ignore as we used to is that men um, are given the responsibility to not be violent and abusive if a cross-dressing male goes into their bathroom or there's a cross-dressing male who identifies as a woman in their prison wing, rather than it being dumped on women. This is a problem that we need to tackle men about. You know, I'm a man. When I go in public, if I have to urinate, which happens a lot at the age of 78, I have never seen a cross-dressed man in a men's washroom. I've never seen it. Because they go into the women's washroom. I guess. You know, but I, you see, this for me has never really been what would a man the biggest do? issue. I don't think many guys would care that much. You know, it's not a threat to them. Um, but I don't know. I, I've never had a friend tell me, "Oh, I was at a washroom the other day and a guy came in dressed as a woman." I've just never. It just doesn't happen. Or, I mean, the, I suppose you know the the, the bigger picture um, for, for feminists concerned about legislation, the criminal justice system, statistical evidence, is about counting the numbers, about saying, well, okay, it's fine. You can't possibly, as a transsexual person, 
um, who presents very clearly as a woman, you can't then go through an airport with a male passport. You know, there, there has to be legal rights and there has to be concession to that. But at the same time, if we're talking about advertising cervical smear tests to trans women because it's ideologically appropriate, then this is just batshit crazy. And it does have a tangible effect on the health service, for example, on what we know about patterns of violence, because patterns of male violence exist amongst trans women to the same level as they do amongst men that haven't transitioned. So that, that to me, is the bigger picture and the more important one. You know, I've seen for decades the odd cross-dressed man, whether or not he lives as a woman, as a transsexual, or whether he is a transvestite or drag queen. But I've regularly seen these men in women's bathrooms. And it is usually, if not ever, caused me any distress or concern. Um, It would cause me concern if there was a man flashing his genitalia in front of girls or any kids, which we saw at the Wee Spa incident in uh, Los Angeles. So... What we do about it is a whole different matter. And in fact, I've been accused of bringing this mess about uh, creating the situation um, that we're in today because I'm a feminist. They confuse me with the likes of Judith Butler. So, you know, some conservative men say, well, it's you feminists. You all said gender's a social construct. That's why we're in this mess. Well, that argument is very, very different from saying that gender identity is a thing that should trump biological sex. Yeah. Judith Butler, Butler in many ways, was a gift to the (laughs) trans actors because her general incomprehensibility meant that you could make any argument. Right. And nobody's (laughs) read it or understood it. Anyway, yeah, right. Uh, And the only thing anyone ever understands is gender is a performance. Really? Well, tell that to the girls in menstrual huts in Nepal. Tell them to perform differently and it'll all be yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about, I mean, your bigger body of work? Because I understand the frustration. As a feminist of 40-odd years, I've devoted most of my professional time and campaigning work to challenging male violence. But I'm known primarily amongst younger generations for being a transphobic bigot. And I deal very little with gender compared to what I do uh, the rights of women and 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 the violence from men. Tell me about your views that have also been criticised on homosexuality and on its links to some kind of biological genetic basis. I'm sure you can put that better than I can. Actually, the truth is that I've had very, very little negative feedback about uh, my work on homosexuality, on the causes of homosexuality. Maybe I've had very little feedback for what you might say is the wrong reason. I, I think a lot of people, uh, back in the day, before gay marriage, be, you know, before the one country after another started okay. implementing uh, legal marriage for gays and lesbians, mm-hmm. during the, during the lead-up to that, period when there were a lot of legal arguments going on, one of the more common legal arguments had to do with the the legal concept of immutability. 
Yes. And if homosexuality was biologically determined and fixed, that went to the immutability argument and was seen as friendly to the cause of uh, getting gay, you know, getting gay marriage uh, institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So there was a time frame uh, when uh, a lot of gays and lesbians were very much in favor of research it pointing towards a biological cause of sexual orientation. So that by Cassie Raymond in the UK and Glenn, I forget his name, they wrote Born Gay. Wilson. Glenn Wilson, yes, yeah. that's right. But Back they're, in... they're latecomers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, yes. you're on the right track. Yes. Sort of 2012, yes. 13 they were. Yeah, yeah, they're latecomers. Personally... I abhor the I abhor the idea that anybody does any research for ideological reasons. I don't care if you're on the side of the angels right. or not. If you're doing your research to to prove some predetermined uh, conclusion, you're going to be fooling yourself, and and you know, and it's going to be have a bad impact. So, I haven't been criticized very much because. A lot of people like the idea of homosexuality being innate and biological, and so that's when I said I haven't been criticized, but for the wrong reason. <laughs> I understand exactly what you're saying, and I think there's a difference between gay men and lesbians. That's a generalization, but certainly there is a difference in the way that lesbians speak about coming out later in life, having been married to men, having been quite happy, fulfilled relationships with men, meet a woman, fall in love, have no sexual interest in men from that moment on. Was she born with some kind of genetic predisposition? Is she a bisexual? Or is it that actually when the barriers are removed and you meet the right person at the right time in the right circumstances, that option is open? With men... The way that I've spoken to gay men about it, they're very, very much of the, I I am absolutely 100% gay, I was born fancying the doctor, um, that I couldn't ever be anything else, it's genetic, it's fixed, and I knew from when I was six months old. And it, it's, there seems to be a, a difference in the way that that's explained across... In subjective terms, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. The, the developmental trajectories can be quite different. Uh, or let's say among lesbians, there is that developmental trajectory of a late, a late um, embracing of lesbianism, which among gay men, you don't, quite, you don't get those kinds of self-reports. They may come out late for some reason, but it's not because they were into women until they weren't. Or they may have been able to because they're men living in a very different world to the world women live in in many ways. They may have been able to have same-sex encounters. They, it was much easier for them to um, meet up with sexual partners, to be in clubs where they could meet potential sexual partners in a way that wasn't open to women in Women didn't cruise. Women didn't use cottages. Women tended not to be have the freedom to have. Well, a glory hole wouldn't make much sense for a woman. 
<laughs> well, it depends if it's a woman with a penis or not. <laughs> but that's a fair point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, women didn't t- don't tend to roll around behind bushes um, at designated days of the week between 9pm and 1am. And, you know, it's it's circumstances, I think, that restrict women in many ways, but... I don't understand the arguments that some gay men use that where they assign a sexuality to themselves from the first memory they ever had, the first the first time they ever kind of had a sense of themselves. I knew I was gay at two. How on earth well, is that? Well, at possible? two, that's, that's exaggeration. But it is the case, not only with homosexuality, but with all kinds of erotic interests, including paraphilias. Because paraphilics, they're different from us normies, but they're not that different. It's not like they're from Mars. Right. And so what you'll get if we, when you're interviewing somebody who's self-aware is prior to puberty, they will have a fascination with something, which once they hit puberty, the testosterone kicks in, starts to be associated with erections, and then masturbation once they figure out how to do that. But... but I wouldn't say it goes back to two, but you do have very early, uh, very early signs of a, of a, what the preference is going to be, because there'll be a fascination. A, I guess fascination okay. is is the strongest word. So it's it's not completely. Um, when they say I always knew, I always was interested in men. It's not as unbelievable as it might seem because it doesn't necessarily mean at the age of, of eight or nine I was getting an erection and masturbating to thoughts of men because they weren't masturbating to anything, but it could very well be true that they were in flipping through the Sears catalog looking at the pictures of men in underwear and not at the pictures right. of women in underwear. I'm prepared to believe that, sure. And is being a lesbian... Or a gay man, a disorder. I would have to say no. But look, we gerrymander behavioral traits so that the ones we think are nice are not disorders, and the ones we think are nasty become disorders. Okay, now. I think you could conceivably have a whole different way of sorting things into categories that would be more rational, and I'll tell you what that would be. But it's too late. All the categories are baked into our society and our reactions. Now, instead of starting out by saying, we're going to call these sexual behaviors okay, or natural variations, whatever that means, I've Mm -hmm. never understood it, and we're going to call these paraphilias. You could have started out by saying, we're going to sort all sexual behaviors into those that are reproductively viable and those that aren't. Right. So basically, on one side, you get plain vanilla heterosexuality. Right. Now we have everything else, which does, is not really reproductively viable. Now, within that group, we can say, these are benign, these are malignant. So, for example, masturbating on a shoe um, is not reproductively viable, but would it be benign or malignant if the shoe isn't attached to a child? Right. Um, I guess you would, in that case, you would have to say, uh, 
is the shoe fetish really preventing the man from having other kinds of romantic relationships and is that in turn leading to unhappiness, depression, loneliness? You right. have to look at consequences. Right. So as a lesbian, I've always been quite clear that, well, first of all, I've you know, dismissed the notion of a gay gene. Well, don't. Well, I mean, you, you've, you've studied this in a scientific way. For me, it's about, surely they'd have found it by now, but we can discuss. But on top of that, when I'm challenged on it, because I'm no scientist, so I'm easy to challenge on this, I say, but why does it matter? Why are there so many scientists spending a lot of time and money looking for causes of homosexuality, same-sex attraction? Because I'm perfectly happy as a lesbian aside from the external prejudice that, of course, we all face in different degrees. But on the other hand, it's quite curious. It's interesting to think about why lesbians exist, for example. What's the point of us? Of course. Of course. Why, you know, why do lesbians exist? Why do gay men exist? Why is a, is a trait that is objectively associated with low for low reproductive yeah. rates, why would that persist in the population? Although these days, it's not so much low reproductive <laughs> rates. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, to think about. Why are there lesbians? It, yeah, I, and um, first place, with regard to genes, it's so easy to get dazzled by MRI research. And very few people, you know, outside of super specialists within biology, even really understand it that mm. way. But you don't have to be dazzled by DNA research because really, the simplest, the simplest uh, thing you can look at to say is this: is this bio, is this is this um, not necessarily genetic, but is this. Uh, determined prenatal is to look at the difference in concordance rates between identical twins and fraternal twins. This this is uh, you don't have to know all about DNA to look at that evidence, um, and it has the additional uh, advantage that when you look at that paradigm, identical versus fraternal twins. That scoops in all the different genes and all the different prenatal influences that could be involved. So the sum total of everything that's biological that could be operating prenatally is going to be reflected in the difference in concordance between monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins. And what does it tell us? It tells us that there is for sure a genetic contribution and it is for sure that there's lots and lots and lots of other things. Such as circumstances, growing up, early experiences, opportunities, that kind of thing you mean? Well, not everything that's determined prenatally is determined genetically. Mm-hmm. The womb is an environment. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and, you know, that kind of part of what my research on and one of, one of the things I've said in, in talks is that not everything that's in, environmental is social and not everything that's biological is genetic okay right. um, so my own work on birth order uh, is I, I have tried to explain I could be wrong but I've tried to explain it 
as uh, that the reason that you have increasing likelihood of homosexuality with you know with increasing number of pregnancies has to do with a maternal immune response that is having the effect of uh, increasing the likelihood of homosexuality in later carried fetuses. So that's biological and it's prenatal, but it's not genetic. Right. Genes do not know about birth order. Right. So in fact, when people talk about the gay gene, that in and of itself is beginning from a premise that makes no sense. It's beginning from a premise that, uh, yeah, there, first place, there, there is not one gay gene. Uh, if if you, and I, I, people shouldn't throw that out as some kind of trump card. There isn't one gene for diabetes. There isn't one gene for adult stature. There isn't one gene for adult body mass. The genetic research for all of these traits, very common traits, stature is a good example. Well, diabetes is a good example because it's a clinical condition. I don't know how many genes they're up to that contribute to it, but dozens. Dozens and mm-hmm. dozens of genes. So, of course, you're not going to find a gene for homosexuality. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not genetic. It right. just means it's not determined by a single gene. But other things that are genetic, like diabetes, are not determined by a single gene, but by dozens. Dozens of genes. And it seems to be pretty constant from what we can gather in terms of, obviously, notwithstanding the fluctuation of opportunities for coming out as lesbian or gay, for being registered on the census as being lesbian or gay, different repressive regimes in countries where being in same-sex encounters is criminalised. But it seems to be a pretty static number of same-sex attracted people that exist uh, on the planet throughout time where there's been any interest in studying this. Yeah, the very earliest surveys, which would have been around the time of the, the classic pre-World War One, I, I think that I think the earliest surveys go about back to the turn of the 20th century, and they turned up frequencies of homosexuality very similar to what modern surveys uh, turn up. You know, a few percentage of the population. Right. Well, you know, I'm not sure it's an anything that will ever be answered to anyone's satisfaction. And as I say, my kind of sense about it is it shouldn't matter how and why, but it's interesting nevertheless. Well, I think it's interesting. And, you know, as I've already indicated to you, I I'm, I'm really dislike agenda-driven research where people set out to prove some ideologically you know, desired position, then they do research that, that, uh, that supports that. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, I also think that it's, uh, I, I think it's perfectly okay to do research because you're interested. As long as you've got a salary coming in and nobody's going to fire you for doing this stuff, well, if it interests you, why not? I, I, believe in, I believe in science for the sake of science. I believe in knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Why do we need to know how the goddamn pyramids were built? And yet, I constantly see new articles about some discovery of a they found a little trace of some piece of wood and blah, blah, blah. And this totally upends our conceptualization of how stones were brought to the pyramids. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the case that, that people who do research 
on, on human issues are motivated by clinical problems or by social agendas. You know, people ask questions just because they're interested and not because they're gonna, they are gonna do anything with that information. What did I mean? Some, some new yet previously undiscovered language has been discovered that, that alongside of ancient Sumerian. Okay, fine. Whatever floats your boat. I wouldn't criticize it. But, you know, when I hear people saying, well, why are you studying sexual orientation if it's not a problem? My feeling is, well, human beings study all kinds of things that are problems. Why are you, you know, concerned that I or somebody else would want to study this one? Well, and the answer is, at least in part, that they're asking this from an ideological perspective. If somebody doesn't want you to study something, it doesn't matter your motivation, surely. It's about their concern as to what will be uncovered or what will be revealed which goes back to your theories of autogynephilia, where it's common sense when we look at that, that of course there's a cohort of men who wish to live as the opposite sex or be classified as transgender, who do this for sexual purposes. And yet this spoils the narrative, does it not, of the trans activists who want everything neatly under one umbrella and that's what happened with Michael Bailey and and is that how you came to be severely criticised for supporting him and what happened to Michael Bailey? Well what happened there and I know Mike Bailey very well um, uh, Mike Bailey, I forget what year I met him but he had become very interested in my work uh, which was you no know, nice to me. I was, I think, I, at that point when he was getting fascinated by my work on gender identity disorders, I think I had already moved on to other topics. But he got very fascinated with it, and he wrote a book, which was published in two thousand three. The man who would be queen. Yes, and a large part of that book was based on my work, and so this was when the trans activists went nuts. Yes, and since his book, which was what they regarded as just put the cat among the pigeons, as you Brits say. Well, they, they thought it was Mein Kampf, actually. Yeah. I mean, somebody actually described it as Mein Kampf, the transsexual, <laughs> or transgender people. So, so that, this, this, this pulled me right into centre stage because, a lot, you know, he, he you know, talks about my work and mentions my name and whatnot constantly through the book. So at that point, which was 2003, then I, that started me being constantly attacked on the internet, and that has continued to the present day. There's probably not a day goes by in the past 21 years that, uh, you know, there hasn't been some derogatory stuff. And I mean that literally. Yes, yes. And this was the same year that I started coming under attack from a very different perspective, but same accusations. Hate, prejudice, causing the deaths of trans people, annihilation etc. Um, I mean, it went from naught to 100 very quickly, didn't it, against you? There you were. An obvious um, positive resource, let's say, in terms yeah. of the research that you had done, where you accepted the diagnosis of transsexuality, where you said very clearly that for some people, surgery and full transition is the only way that they can feel 
um, satisfied with their lives or overcome their depression. I'm, again, I'm, I'm bastardising your words, forgive me, but you were very positive about the choices that some people make to transition. You never said that this should not no. be on offer. So how did you go from that to a full-blown bigot <laughs> very, very quickly? Because this is my experience Without too. having shaved a hair on my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was a left-wing feminist human rights campaigner. I became a Nazi bigot overnight. Exactly the same. You know, when I first started, when I was working in the gender clinic back in those days, it hadn't become, uh, it hadn't become a, a status symbol to have a trans kid. Okay, so I was at that point over on the, you know, over on the left liberal side. Without me moving my position one bit, the whole world shifted. Yes. So that I'm now some kind of right wing bigot. And yet I'm still saying what I was saying yes. at the times when I was when I was a left wing. <laughs> so what has shifted? This is the thing I say. How is it one minute I was this and the next I'm on the extreme right wishing for the annihilation of trans babies? It's that extreme. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, it's very strange. What is it? Was it a shock when it started to happen? Oh yeah! At first, back in back in when it first started happening, it was it's like, what are they talking about? I mean, I wrote articles in support of 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 transition. I I wrote I contributed to briefs for lawyers to uh, reinstate uh, you know OHIP, which is uh, the Ontario Provincial Medical Health Insurance yes. Plan. I was involved in you know pressuring the government to continue. Uh, paying for the surgery. I did all of that stuff, and now in the blink of an eye, I'm public enemy number one for the trans community. Uh, How did it play out? Because obviously there was the internet, it was pre-Twitter, it was just at the beginnings of social media, but not far in. Did you get... I mean, there were articles, I've looked and I've seen articles from that very day in 2003 that just continued all the way through letters to newspapers, complaints to your employers or to grant givers. I mean, it went full throttle, didn't it, against you? Oh, yeah. And one one local transsexual tried to emulate what had been done with Mike Bailey and was writing letters everywhere to try and get me fired from my job. Andrea James? No, no, a, a lesser light. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we would call a pound shop Andrea James. Oh, okay, right. yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, that's what that's what she was. But she was a little too bonkers to carry it off, and she wrote letters saying that I was personally responsible. I want to say thousands of deaths of transsexuals yes. in Canada, but it might have been hundreds of thousands. It was such yeah. a number that you would say. Even if he did, where would he put the bodies? Very busy. Yeah. Very, very busy uh, doing that. But so she was so nuts in her claims that she didn't get too far with my employer. And then she kind of lost her grip. And I think I wasn't getting fired fast enough or whatever fantasy she had in mind. So she started attacking the CEO of the hospital. Well, that was not the most politic move. All of a sudden, once the CEO was getting attacked, we have to deal with this person, uh -huh. right? When it was just uh -huh. 
when it was just me, you know, things weren't happening so fast to protect me. But when it became the CEO was being accused of, I forget what the hell she she accused him of. Well, employing you, presumably. <laughs> no, I, I think she was throwing other throwing out other things. Um, so guilt by association is yeah. huge, isn't it? Yeah. So anyone that would work with you, anyone that didn't denounce you, anyone that didn't go along with their crackpot theories about you, and in the meantime, Bailey was also under attack and presumably you talked to each other and said, what the hell? Well, sure, we talked to each other. And of course, I, I felt terrible. I had survivor's guilt. I thought, oh my God, because this man liked my work so much that he tried to promote it, he's having people trying to get him fired from his job people attacking his family, all this. So I felt bad. I've been through that, and it's illogical, but there's nothing you can say about it. But they went after his kids, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, uh, this Andrea James got photographs of his kids. His daughter at that time was youngish, 14, 15, in that neighborhood. I forget exactly. Put a picture up her, a picture of, of her up online with a, some filthy caption about yeah. her being a cock starved exhibitionist yeah. or, or something like this. Um, so yeah, that was when it started. But after you know a certain number of years of it, I just began like saying, well, whatever. Yeah, you know? I mean, I didn't get fired like Ken did. Yeah. So life could be a lot worse. Well, that's the old Jewish proverb of the rabbi and the goat. I don't know if you know it, but it's basically a in the shtetl days, just before the pogroms, where people lived in extremely cramped, impoverished conditions. A man was living with his wife and his mother-in-law and his six kids, and he went to the rabbi and said, I, this is intolerable, I can't take any more. My life is hell. It's noise, it's crowded. And the rabbi said, go and buy a goat and move the goat in with you. And long proverb short, basically, he then went back to the rabbi and said, I want to kill myself. And the rabbi said, sell the goat. <laughs> and a week later, he went back to the rabbi and said, my life is perfect. Because the goat was no longer living in the... So it's kind of rabbi and goat scenarios. Yeah. Like, well, at least yeah. I wasn't fired. Well, at least I didn't lose my relationship. <laughs> well, at least I didn't lose my home. But it's totally unacceptable, isn't it, what they do? And... You just said there, after a few years, you thought, what the hell? I went through that process. I tried to build bridges. I tried to speak publicly, debate with trans people. I tried to have events where we would try and discuss the issues between us, all before this no-debate culture came around. And then, of course, I realised that they want to burn the witch. They want to punish. It's a form of sadism. So nothing I could ever do or say would make a difference. So I may as well continue to speak respectfully and honestly, but continue to speak with no holds barred. And I remember being asked about this once. Somebody said, could you not have apologised? And I said, apologised? If I actually doused myself in petrol, set fire to myself and ran through the street screaming, I atone, I atone, I'm so sorry for what I've done to trans people, some passing trans woman, would have inhaled the smoke, would develop secondary lung cancer, and then I would be to blame. There's nothing. There's nothing. Look at what happened to Martina Navratilova. She spoke respectfully to some male cyclist identifying as female, 
explained why this was unfair in sports. Martina Navratilova was a trans ally, an active trans ally, had done more for the LGBTQ community in her life than most, and became a bigot overnight and just decided, fuck it. I'm just going to say exactly what I think. Yeah, yeah. It's I... a lesson. Yeah. And she's lucky in a way that her career... I mean, you... You're lucky if you've moved in your career past the point where you're vulnerable. See, this was what, why I didn't get fired. Would I have gotten fired? Sure. Yes. But in 90, I left in 95, 96, was when I left the gender clinic. I still maintain some association with it because they liked me to go to their case conferences. But that's when I moved into a, the clinic for assessing sex offenders, which was really more interesting to me anyway. Right. So I had gotten out of Dodge before things got really bad. If I had still been working at that hospital in 2015 when Ken got fired, would I have been fired? Absolutely. I don't have the slightest doubt. And obviously, I'll talk to Ken about this, um, that they fired him without any regard for the fact that they'd left themselves wide open to have their asses sued off. It's, it's the way in which... People are losing their jobs or their college courses or even their children, their livelihoods because the baying mob is bigger and stronger and louder than those standing up and saying, no, you can't do that. But now that many of us in the UK, you'll know, started to take legal cases against these bad decisions, these unlawful decisions, and it's, it's kind of helping... But the idea that you have to take legal cases because somebody is willing to fire you as a result of complaints from ideologues is crazy. How did we get to that? I don't know, but you know, you've brought up something that I have thought about a lot over the years and that continues to infuriate me. Patients are patients. There's a reason why I'm on this side of the desk and you're on that side of the desk. If you're a patient, I expect you to have ideas that I don't agree with, that blah, blah, blah. You're a patient, okay? It's not the patients. It's not the transsexuals who have made the world what it is. It's all of the normies who decided that they were going to get on this virtue signaling, goddammit, bandwagon. I agree Entirely. My, my brother wishing me a happy Thanksgiving. Oh, oh yes, Thanksgiving, of course. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, I agree 100%. You know, like, they're patients, okay? They have a disorder. What's your fucking excuse? Right. Yeah. And it is, we, <laughs> we call them the trans allies. Yeah. These are the problem. I have friends who are transgender. I have friends who say to me, oh my God, they're speaking on our behalf again. Make them stop. This is, the institutional capture is crazy. And it feels to me like they just want a fight. They want a big fight where they're on the right side of history. And they want a new South Africa fighting apartheid. They want a new war that's black and white. And that's why so many of the trans activists, in my view, have now started doing the whole, what we're calling, homos for Hamas. So the kind of crazy queers for Palestine... They are, they, 
utterly uninformed and uneducated about what's going on in the Middle East, but they've taken a side. And you all know the ones that are chanting the slogans, trans women and women, are also chanting from the river to the sea. They're chanting about all kinds of Black Lives Matter issues that they have no clue about. And this is swaying. These, these ideologues are swaying huge institutions into capitulating to them. Why? That's my point. That's my point. Patients who have a disorder that involves contrafactual beliefs, convictions, of course they're going to fight for whatever they want. And if you look at activists, it's activists' job to get as much as they can. It's not activists' job to set limits on themselves. It's other people's job to set limits on activists. Fine. This is what you expect from these populations. What's with these administrators? What's with all these virtue signaling administrators and politicians who don't even understand what the issues are? Right. But they have junior staffers who tell them, well, this is you know, what you need to be saying and doing to be with it. And if you're a politician, there's a big bonus because it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost anything to say you're in favor of trans rights. It's not like, okay, where's the bill that outlines the budget that you're going to be spending on this? Yeah, if they were to say, I believe in affordable housing for all of those that are currently rough sleepers, that's going to cost them money. They have to put their money where their mouth is. But when it's an ideological issue... So it, it also is bad business. For example, publishing, and the media obviously in the UK, has just gone to pot on this. My last book that was published in 2021, it was taken up by one of the big publishing houses. I met with the publisher. She was wildly excited she took me to dinner with my agent. We shook hands. She said, I'm so excited about this. It's going to be great. She went into the acquisitions meeting, which, as you probably know, is the meeting where they just rubber stamp everything. So this book by Bindle is going to come out. This And a couple of the young, upper middle class, recently having left a red brick university, said, if you publish Bindle's book, and it was nothing to do with transsexuality, transgender issue. It's a book on feminism. If you publish Bindle's book, we will leave. And somebody started crying and said she would need counselling. Now, at that stage, what you do is, you say to the ones threatening that they will leave, good luck in getting another job, and you let them leave. And you say to the person who needs counselling, perhaps you need to have a think about whether you're up to the job. Instead, they cancelled my book. Now, that's bad business because it went to another publisher and it made money for that publisher. And they were publishing these trans titles at the time that sold 600 books entirely from writers that couldn't write. And I don't mean because trans people can't write. I mean, this particular cohort, their books were being snapped up by these publishing houses that were cancelling the likes of me, Helen Joyce, Kathleen Stock, all of whom wrote books that sold well. So it's not even making financial sense. No. What are they scared of? I mean, you're a psychologist. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not much of a psychologist. Really. 
I don't understand it, and I don't understand. Man, I, I I read about this stuff all the time that employers are afraid of their young of their young staff, and I I, I was that. But well, if you're not happy here, there's the door. There's more where you came from. I don't, I don't get it. I don't right. understand it. I don't no. understand it at all. No, and, and I think, I mean, what, what was interesting to me about the publisher that just accepted, rolled over when these blue-fringed idiots said, we'll leave, we're, we're traumatised, is that when it went to another publishing house, it was handled by a male publisher who has no skin in the game, either side of any debate about this, but obviously he's good at his job. And when a member of staff said during that acquisitions meeting, I'll need to have counselling, I'm highly distressed at the idea that we're working on Bindle's book. He took her aside and said, let me tell you something. Before you were born, Bindle was saving women's lives. I mean, you know, that's very kind of him. You know, whether or not that's true is another matter. But he said she was doing the work that we should be grateful for. Now, I think you need to get over yourself. Go home early, have a long bath, and we'll see you tomorrow. Now, that's surely a reasonable response. You don't not take employees' distress into consideration, but distress because a book is being published that they disagree with. It's a publishing house. No, I know. Right? They'd published all kinds of atrocities. Men who'd been convicted of child sexual abuse, who'd written books. I mean, what the hell? Are we going to now put them all through a filter of wokeness? I don't know. I don't understand it. I feel like there must be something I'm missing. I don't understand about the world of business. I don't understand how employers could be terrified of very junior employees who could not who must be utterly replaceable. How much do you know when you're 25? You know, they must be utterly replaceable. Why are they afraid of their own employees and feel that they have to cave in on issues like accepting a book for publication? Do you remember an article that was published? I can't remember. Maybe it was the New York Times. Maybe it was the Atlantic. At least 15 years ago, maybe a bit more. And its headline was, New Ways to be Mad. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was, um, uh, no, was that Amy Bloomer? Was that what's his name? It was what's his name because it was, it, was it was a male writer. I know, I know exactly who you, who you mean. Well, anyway, I, I read it at the time. It was utterly fascinating, brilliant piece of journalism where he, he reminded us of the Victorian fugue state where hundreds and thousands of people were walking around in this fugue state. And he said, you know, over the years, obviously, there are new ways to be mad. And he actually looked also at the body dysmorphia era where psychiatrists would, did, Russell Reed did, um, sign off three patients in Scotland to have limbs removed because they said... I actually met the surgeon who did two surgeries. Right. Interesting, because this was something that, you know, obviously, I think, has a close connection to... Many of the issues we're interested in. I have to tell you a funny story about this surgeon. Please do. Okay. His name was, it was a very common name, like Robert Smith. Mm-hmm. I think he had done two surgeries in Scotland. Uh, and then his hospital said, that's it, you're not yes. doing any more. So I was at a conference in Columbia, Columbia University in New York. And uh, was it was a conference for these um, uh, people who wanted... To, 
elective amputations. It was, mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and uh, they invited me there because they thought that somehow I would have some insight on how you could get popular support for elective surgeries for body modification. So that's why I was, I was invited. And the surgeon who had done these two surgeries was there. And I didn't speak to him much, but I did speak to him a little bit. And at one point, he said, oh, they were, you know, he screened these two patients very carefully. And if there had been any sign whatsoever that they had been sexually aroused by the idea of being an amputee, that he certainly would not have operated on them. And I thought, you know, I think I've heard this, you know. Dear God. I mean, there's a website Ampu, Ampulove. Of course. It's a thing. Women also, we know, have been identified as having that paraphilia. Yeah, there were a couple there. Right. So, wow. That's all I can say. I mean, it was exactly how people used to talk about approving transsexuals for surgery yes. in the 70s. Oh, there's been even one episode of masturbation in connection with, with cross-dressing. Then we couldn't possibly consider this patient for surgery. This, this guy was saying the exact same thing about people who wanted their legs cut off. Just wow. And when I wrote my piece in 2003, I actually wrote about that episode, the Scottish case. And wrote about Russell Reed, the psychiatrist, who was then... He wasn't struck off, but he was stopped from practising um, with with uh, gender dysphoric patients because he fast-tracked them through in 20 minutes in some cases. But that article, New Ways to be Mad... Carl Elliott. That's right. That's right. But I just think that there's a core experience that so many of us share where we've just spoken out, we've said what we think, or we've supported someone who is worthy of support, or we've developed a theory that is part of our particular interest, and we've done it all in good faith. And the next thing we know, we've we've acted in the worst possible faith. We've done it in order to harm. We have set progress back, you know, by hundreds of years. And people seem to run away from speaking out about it in case it happens to them. I mean, did you find that with some of your colleagues when you started coming under attack, that they would, ooh, I better not say anything because I don't think I could cope with that? Well, at the point at which I started coming under attack... First place, I, in those days, I wasn't. I wasn't like in a. You're you're in an in, in an, an inherently public facing job. I wasn't. Right. Uh, so you know, I wasn't getting. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff on the internet, but if people didn't, you know, were disapproved of what I did in like normal real life, they would probably just stay away from me, and uh, and so I wasn't having to face too much of that. A lot of the people that I, as I said, my my window on the world is Twitter, which is is, is a very bizarre, mm-hmm. uh, a very unrealistic world. But um, uh, like a lot of the gender critical people there, insist on blaming men for everything to do with the gender problem, and you know I I, I kind of really want to say. Have you ever looked at how many women have been among the most ardent 
proponents yeah. of this, yeah. you know? Yeah, it was a big learning curve for me when I wrote my book, my latest book on feminism, and expected to find, sort of half expected to find, going into universities, seeing the men pushing the agenda and the women following suit, when in fact so many of the women were head honchos, were instigating this stuff, were the bullying crowd and sort of setting the agenda. I'm not saying it doesn't serve men well. I'm not saying men don't benefit from it. But so many of the women are the worst trans allies. Well, look at Helen Hunt. Uh, what's her name? Was Helen, not Helen Hunt. Ruth Hunt. Oh, Ruth Hunt. She, she, has, she has brought... She's wreaked such havoc and, and done such damage. And she did that all very coldly and clinically. There are so many women who have pushed this ideology forward and at the great expense of not just women, of gay men, of children. I agree with you. And it has been a big... It's been a very difficult learning curve for me how many women are instigating her, this. Her successor as Stonewall, I believe, is also... Nancy Kelly. But the difference between... Nancy Kelly and Ruth Hunt. Ruth is bright. She should know better. Nancy Kelly, if she had any fewer brain cells, she'd have to be watered twice a day. Right. <laughs> this is a woman who was set up to, and I blame her entirely, she's completely and utterly responsible for her own actions, but my God, was she set up to take the flak after Ruth Hunt left. But she, she's the one that pushed forward the no debate culture, which meant that none of us that wanted to question or challenge this mad ideology and the workings of the ideology, none of us could actually do that because we couldn't speak to trans people or their allies in any public forum. We weren't able to have the discussion. And she was responsible for that. And uh, two of the leading proponents of, of transition for children in the US are women. There's that uh, Joanna Olson Kennedy, yes. surgeon. She's she's you know very big and she's pushing for surgery on like young teenagers. Yes. Then there's Diane Aronsaf yes. in San Francisco. There's a lot of women who have really pushed this stuff, and I feel that that you know when I whenever I see people saying men 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 men, it's the patriarchy that's forcing this. I'm like, wait a minute. Let's look at how many women have been pushing this and pushing it hard. I think that's fair. And I think that sometimes we fail to distinguish between who is instigating this, who are the drivers of this, and who most benefits from it. Now, obviously, individuals benefit. Individual women benefit a huge amount. Many women benefit by being the good girls or by being seen as on the right side of history. But... Many of them, I think, we can see in the same light as those women like Phyllis Schlafly, who will fight against any feminist progress because she wants the world to remain as she sees through her lens, in a way that's safe for women, in a way that means women can get to be nice and kind and approved of. So I think you're right. I think it's fair to say that. I think ultimately... The, the trans ideal, ideology movement 
is a men's rights movement. It doesn't mean that men are the key instigators of the ideology or of the hounding and bullying. But when you see these groups of young men outside universities shouting and screaming at feminists going inside to talk about male violence or watch a film about gender ideology, and they're shouting and, and they're wearing black masks, and they're just like, they are just young male thugs that hate women, and it gives them an opportunity. I think it's those optics that get a lot of reaction on Twitter from feminists or from those that call themselves gender critical, because groups of young men shouting, particularly at middle-aged women, and using the language that they do, is a very bad optic. But it doesn't mean that they're the ones, they're only the ones that are driving this. I agree with you. It's very disturbing. Yeah, it, it is. Well, it would be more disturbing, it would be disturbing to you for reasons that are different. It would be a disappointment to you. You know, uh, to me, it's just like, okay, let's be even-handed when we're dishing out the blame. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I take no prisoners on that front. And I used to really avoid using the term handmaiden because it's been used in a deeply sexist way historically. But I use it now because many of these women are doing the work of the patriarchy and they're doing it happily, joyously, passionately and without any reservation or guilt and yeah okay so most women aren't feminists most women don't fight for the liberation of other women but it's still pretty shameful when younger generations of women are screaming at older generations of feminists who fought for the rights that they now enjoy and take so for granted and obviously, as a political activist, I would think that, you know, that it is deeply disappointing to see that they're so willing to throw their rights away, that they didn't have to fight for. And I'm glad they didn't. Lesbians, young lesbians, just saying the word lesbian is obsolete, we're queer. I know, it just makes me insane. Another, and, and homosexual is also a word, it's the word I use, it's not a word I use in normal discourse, it's the word I use when I'm writing scientific papers. Yeah. And, you know, there's like, it's uh, academic publishing is trying to ban hom the word homosexual as a bad word. But this is a descriptor. Exactly. It's the most neutral word you can find. Why should this be? And who the hell are these people who make this decision and say, well, from now on, homosexual is a bad word. Who are these people? Well, who are they and why does it end up becoming such a powerful rallying cry when many of us have been not trying to get the word banned but speaking out against the normalisation of the term queer where we're just saying don't call me queer if you want to be called queer if you want to reclaim it that's your right but don't impose it upon me now queer could be seen as an offensive word it was an offensive word right. it used to be an insult right so now, to some people, it's a liberating word. But homosexuality is worse than the word queer. Yeah, I know. What? I, I just don't, I don't understand it. Um, but I will continue to use the word homosexual in my writing until, until I stop writing, because this, I'm just not going to be intimidated by that. 
Well, many you know, gay men I know are reclaiming the term homosexual because they feel that the language has been so bastardised that homosexual is a very straightforward descriptor. So my friend Dennis Kavanagh, for example, who runs the Gay Men's Network and is part of the LGB Alliance, um, he describes himself as, you know, I'm a homosexual male. And he'll say on Twitter, my homosexual brothers should stand in support of lesbians. And it's a nice thing to see. It could not be clearer what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Whereas queer this, queer that, um, who's who? Which queer? What do you mean by it? I have to still stop and think, trans woman, okay, that means biological. <laughs> it used to be so simple. You said male to female, yes. female to male. Right. Okay, nobody but nobody could misunderstand that terminology. Right. And that's now another, you know, verboten terminology. Well, don't get me started on the non-binaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think I should probably... Say thank you and it's been great. Thank you for listening. See you next time.